What did you want to be when you grew up? All right, so I asked some of my friends that, not just for them, but actually for their kids. I threw it up on social media and said, hey, what do your kids want to be when they grow up? You know, I got some of the normal, great, but boring answers, um, like firefighter, police officer, doctor, nurse, veterinarian, you know, good, just kind of predictable. But then I got some fun ones, right? I got some that I'm actually pretty excited about. Uh, chicken farmer, okay? Waffle house worker. And I love Waffle House. That's just very specific. Um, also specific, a hippo. Spider-Man. An elf in Santa's workshop. Cool, I like Christmas too, buddy. Uh, but here's my two new favorites. A firefighter astronaut and a ninja scientist. And I don't know what a ninja scientist does, but I also would like to be that when I grow up. Uh, and part of why I think those last two are my favorites is because when I was little, I also wanted to combine two jobs. Uh, I've got an incredible dad. If you're watching, happy Father's Day, dad. He's a chiropractor, so I wanted to be a chiropractor. And I also wanted to be a balloon artist. Like someone, you know, at carnivals that shapes balloons into animals. Uh, I can make a dog. I can make a snake. I can make a worm. I can make a sword as long as it doesn't have a handle. Um, so I wanted to take those two things, do both of them part-time, and I want to be a part-time chiropractor and then part-time balloon shaper. And then when I got just a little bit older, I wanted to be an eschatologist. That was not on the list of things people wanted to be when they grew up. And most of you, understandably, don't know what on earth that is. Uh, that's fair. That's normal. As an elementary school kid, I wanted to be an eschatologist, somebody who studied end-time events. It's weird, all right? Let's just own that. But the reason is also weird, because it's not as if I loved end-time events, or it's not like I knew somebody who was an eschatologist. I wanted to be an eschatologist because I was terrified. See, I, I, I grew up hearing people talk about how we're living in the end times. And I heard people do the Revelation Bible studies. And I heard them talk about it being in the end of the world. And signs Jesus is coming back any minute now. And I, I'd hear all of that. And I mean, I was terrified. Like, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't understand. I didn't know, is this real? What, what, is, what am I supposed to do here? Uh, maybe you guys feel that way when people talk about the end of the world or the end times. And, and I get it. I was so scared that I wanted to be someone who studied it so that I wouldn't have to be afraid, right? That's not good. And the thing is, if I knew then what I knew now, I don't think I'd be as afraid. We're going through the book of Revelation. It's our series called Spoiler Alert. Here's your spoiler alert. Uh, it's not even a spoiler alert anymore. The book of Revelation was not written to bring terror. It was, it was written to bring hope and also some practical encouragement and practical instructions to people. See, there is some stuff in here about how the story ends, but there's also some stuff in here that's written to real people in real churches uh, across Asia Minor. We've actually got a map, so I'm going to take this, I'm going to slide it, and then we are going to look at this map together. So we have a map of Asia Minor, as it was known back then, or Turkey, as it is today. And in this map, we have some cities, right? We have Ephesus, we have Smyrna, we have Pergamos, we have Sardis, we have Thyatira, we have Philadelphia. These are seven real cities and geographical locations. And in the letter of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, there's some specific instructions for the churches in each of these cities. All right? And by the way, when we're talking about the churches in those cities, we don't mean like the Ridge or First Baptist. We mean like the church of South Central Indiana. And so that's a large group of people who met in different house churches who are all going to get this letter. And the letters written to them in Revelation 2 and 3, they each have three similar components. Right? They each have these sections. They get a, a way to go section. Hey, you guys are doing this right. They get a work on this. All right, guys, you need to fix this. And sometimes that's pretty harsh. 
And then we get a we're going to win. They get a reminder that victory is coming to hold on, to stay faithful. So they get a way to go, a work on this, and a we're going to win. And the first of these seven letters is written to the church at Ephesus. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a look. We're just going to walk through the letter to the church at Ephesus, and we're going to learn a little bit from that. So Jesus, in Revelation, is speaking to John, and he tells John to write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Pause. Angel. So angel literally means messenger. So Jesus is telling John, I want you to write this to the messenger of the church at Ephesus. So this is the person who would send and receive messages on behalf of the people who worship Jesus in Ephesus. To them, I want you to let them know that this is from Jesus, and it says, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Adam talked about this last week. That's symbolic, and it's talking about Jesus and his lordship and how he is in the church. All right, so Jesus is over the church. To the people at Ephesus, from Jesus. All right, verse 2. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your patient endurance. And I know you don't tolerate evil people. Okay? You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You've discovered they're liars. Hey, you guys work hard. Way to go. You've been patient. Way to go. You don't tolerate evil people. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean like if somebody sins, they're not welcome there? No. That church was full of sinners. This church is full of sinners. Churches are full of sinners. What Jesus is saying that they're doing a good job of is they're not taking something that is wrong and then celebrating it and saying, hey, what you're doing that's evil, we say that's good. They're not doing that. They even tested to see if people were telling the truth, right? If someone's an apostle but are not, is it somebody who claims that they're following Jesus and they're not? All right, you guys are spotting false teaching. Good job. Next part. He says, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. I wanted to pull this verse out because this is a theme we see throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus cares when people endure, when people stay committed, even if it's hard. And they have suffered for Jesus without quitting, without giving up. That means a lot to Jesus. And it's a theme we see through the whole book of Revelation. All right, that's their way to go section. And now we're shifting to the work on this section. All right, we get a but. So, but, I have this against you. I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. All right, so we're, we're shifting here. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. And those aren't fun words to hear, right? If you hear somebody say, hey, you don't love me like you used to, that is not a fun conversation, okay? And Jesus is in strong words telling the church at Ephesus, man, you guys are doing a lot of the right things, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Have you guys ever gotten in trouble for doing the right thing? I know I have. I have the right thing for the wrong reasons. Like I can distinctly remember as a kid, I was told to take the trash out. And I did. And man, I did it with an attitude. And then I got in trouble for taking the trash out, just like mom told me to do. Got in trouble for the attitude, not the trash part. But that's not how I remember it. Same principle. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason, still the wrong thing. And maybe a more grown-up version of this would be the husband who takes his wife out on a date, not to connect with her, not because he cares about her, but if his mind says, like, I still shut her up. Like, hey, you might be doing the right thing, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. Jesus cares about us doing the right thing for the right reason. So he continues. He says, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Hey, guys, you don't love me like you used to. You're not doing the right things for the right reasons anymore. Come on. Let's reset. Come back to me. Do the right things for the right reasons. If you don't, there's going to be consequences. But it's not all bad news because then we shift back to a way to go section. But this is in your favor. 
You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. The Nickelodeons. Cool. Great. Uh, no. I see, I have no idea who the Nicolaitans are. Do you guys know who the Nicolaitans are? If you just said yes, you probably lied or you did the Ridge Reading Challenge. Okay? I get it. I had no idea who they were. I'd look this up. If you don't know who they are, great. But I want to point this out. The church at Ephesus, the people who originally got this letter, they would have known who they were. Just like we know who Kentuckians are, right? They're the people who are like really into... I'm not from there. I should make the jokes. Um... <laughs> But it's just, it's a geographical term. So the church at Ephesus, they would have known who the Nicolaitans were. There's a lot of stuff in the book of Revelation that we have to learn, we have to research, we have to study, because we're not the original audience. But the church at Ephesus who got this letter, yeah, they know exactly who they are. They would have known that the people of Nicolaitans were a group who were having, uh, they were really indulgent with sex and with food and unrepentant sin, and they were ignoring what God said about that. And so what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus is, hey, there's stuff you're getting right, there's stuff you're getting wrong, I appreciate that you don't affirm or say that what the Nicolaitans are doing is good. All right? As the letter continues, it shifts from a, hey, way to go and a work on this to a we're going to win section. So each of these letters to the churches, they have a we're going to win section, talking about the victory that is coming. See if you can spot it here. We highlighted it. You can spot it here. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Here it is. To everyone who is victorious, man, we're going to win. To those who are going to conquer... I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. We'll talk about some of what that looks like or what that means later in the series. But the theme here is that to this church, there's a, hey, we're going to win. There is this idea of victory that is coming. And that is the first of seven letters that we see in Revelation 2 and 3. For the sake of time, we're not going to go through all of them in depth, but you're welcome to do that on your own. We're doing it in the Ridge Reading Challenge. If you have any questions, you can text them in. Uh, We would love to answer them either as we get them, or maybe in our uh, seminar, if we want to call that, at the end. But to the church at Ephesus, if we're going to summarize it and in one line, it's don't fall out of love with Jesus. We're going to continue. We're just going to do summaries for the next ones. So to the church at Smyrna, they're told to be fearless and to be faithful. To the church at Pergamum, they're told to repent of compromise. And then in Thyatira, we're going to zoom in on this one for a little bit. We see something kind of cool. In Revelation 2.19, uh, Jesus says, I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And way to go. I love this part. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. And Jesus, he cared about their growth. He cares about our growth. He cares about our next steps. He's calling, not only are you getting this right, but you're growing as you get it right. Way to go. And then as that continues, uh, we get a couple more letters. The next one is the church at Sardis. And this one's less encouraging. Actually, out of all the letters, this one's the harshest, harshest uh, Jesus spoke this to John who sent it in the form of a letter. If Jesus texted it to them, it would have been something like this. Wake up. Try me. Boop. Um, that's some creative liberties. Jesus didn't cuss. And I think maybe, maybe I can get away with the, with this emoji here. But it is a very harsh letter. Right? It's like Jesus is taking them and grabbing them and saying, wake up. This is serious. Here's the original language. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains. For even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. It's very strongly worded. Jesus cares a lot about his church. He celebrates when it's going well, and he cares a lot when we miss it. He's serious. Guys, get it together. Wake up. The next letter is actually the most encouraging one. It's a letter to the church at Philadelphia. 
to the Church of Philadelphia, I love your cream cheese. The eagles are stacked. Your Liberty Bell has a crack in it. Get that fixed. Love Jesus. Uh, no, different Philadelphia. Remember, this is a Philadelphia in ancient Turkey. But they do get a really encouraging letter. He tells them to keep going. You guys are crushing it. You are doing so well at so many things. Way to go. I want to zoom in on that we're going to win section near the end of it. Uh, in Revelation 3.11, Jesus encourages them. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Crowns were associated with victory. So no one will take away your victory. Keep going. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And to those that are victorious, to those that endure, to those that stay committed, man, you're going to get to be with God forever, and nothing will take you away from it. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so so worth it. And then the seventh and the final letter, it's written to the Laodiceans. All right? And they're warned against being lukewarm. When you're following Jesus, you're called to be all in. And he says, I want you to be all in. It's not something I want you to just do part-time or just dabble in. Uh, if we want to think about a marriage, right? If somebody is just part-time married, uh, that's called cheating, okay? Jesus wants someone's full devotion. He wants someone's full commitment. He cares a lot about it. Here's our recap. We're going to go through all those churches again in just as much detail. Just kidding. Uh, Ephesus, don't fall out of love with Jesus. Smyrna, be fearless and be faithful. Pergamum, repent of compromise. Thyatira, keep growing. Sardis, wake up. Philadelphia, stay faithful. Laodicea, don't be lukewarm. Okay, cool. Um, If you guys need a breath, I get it. And if you're a little overwhelmed, hey, that's a lot of long words. I get that too. But dial back in. Because there's a theme that we can see throughout the letters to each of these seven churches. It applies to them and it applies to us. Be fully devoted to Jesus. Be fully devoted to Jesus. We can see that theme throughout each of those letters. It applies to them and it applies to us today. What does it mean to be fully devoted? Well, it means to be all in, to be fully committed. And then practically, that means taking every area of our life, whether we're naturally or not naturally like Jesus in that area, and then surrendering it or resurrendering it to Jesus. Saying, God, hey, this is my habit. This is my thought pattern. This is my action. This is what I want to do. It doesn't line up with what you say to do, so will you change me and make me more like you? Will you change that area of my life and make it more like you? Surrendering and resurrendering our life to Jesus. Be fully devoted to Jesus. That's it. Short, sweet, to the point. Really hard to do. Good luck, guys. See you next week. Uh, no, sorry. Some of you guys might have prayed I would do that. Uh, your prayers aren't I'd answer today. Be fully devoted to Jesus. That is really easy to say on a stage and really hard to practically do in every area of our life. But that's what we're called to do. So we're going to take two areas and focus on them. Be committed and be conquerors. Be committed and be conquerors. See, these are some of the themes that we see in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Be committed and be conquerors. We also see them throughout the rest of Revelation as well. See, those churches, they were praised for their commitment or they were encouraged to return to a previous level of commitment. And they were encouraged to hold on, to be victorious, to be conquerors. So here's the first one. Be fully devoted to Jesus by being committed. All right? I want you guys to think about a great marriage. Maybe that's something you've experienced. Maybe that's something that you hope for. Maybe that's something you've seen in a friend. But think about a great marriage. All right? Uh, that doesn't happen on accident. And it doesn't happen without full commitment, with two people who are fully committed. 
There's a lot of other ingredients to a great marriage. I don't know all of them. I'm pretty sure I heard that one of them is signing up for the relationship goals this upcoming Friday night. Yeah, I'm going there. This upcoming Friday night here at the Ridge, you can sign up today. Probably an ingredient for a great marriage. I don't know. I know there's a lot more that I don't know, but one of them is being fully committed. And Jesus cares a lot about people being fully committed to him. And we can even see this in marriages. We can see that there's tough seasons where sometimes somebody's emotions might not cause them to stick it out, but someone's commitment will. And it's not just like that with marriage. That's a principle that applies to so many areas of life. Just think about the last time you wanted to quit something, right? Maybe that's your job. Maybe that's parenting. Maybe that's your studies. Maybe it's a hobby. Just pick, right? There's times we've all wanted to quit something. And when it's hard, sometimes we need more than our feelings to keep going. It's the same thing with following Jesus. Um, I'm going to level with you guys, okay? I don't always feel like following Jesus. I just, I don't feel it sometimes. I don't. Um, hear me out. Don't fire me. My boss knows I'm going to say this. Uh, there are moments where I don't feel like doing what Jesus says, where I don't feel like spending the work or the energy that it takes to actually follow him. Like, there's conversations where I know at the start of this conversation, I'm going to be exhausted at the end of it because I'm going to say, well, this is what I believe because of Jesus. We're going to go rounds, and then we're going to get to an agree-to-disagree situation, and I just kind of want to skip the whole thing. Or there's moments where I don't want to be against something that some of my friends celebrate. But to be fully devoted to Jesus means I don't get to pick and choose his commands to follow. Right, Because if we just pick and choose the commands of Jesus that we follow, we're not committed to Jesus. We're committed to our preferences. So to be fully devoted to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, period. We don't always feel like doing that. But we don't want to trust our feelings. Not fully. We don't want to rely on them at least. If instead we could be committed. to Say, Jesus, I will follow you, period. Even when it's hard. Even in those moments where I just want to give up, where I just want to quit. Because I believe you are who you say you are, and I believe you're good, and I believe you're worth it. I'll follow you, even when I don't feel like it. So even in those moments, be committed. And maybe you can hear that, and maybe you're thinking, yes! And maybe you can hear that, and then you're discouraged. Because you want that. Right? You want to say that. You want to believe it. And then you also know that you're in a season of your life or you've been in a season of life where you've not done that. I get that. So does Jesus. There's some great news. And those churches who were told, hey, you need to be committed to Jesus, and they were invited to return to a previous level of commitment to him. So are we. This side of the grave, there's no such thing as too late. We're allowed to return to a previous level of commitment to Jesus. He wants us to come back to him. So if that's where you're at, maybe today, maybe where you've been over the last couple of months, uh, I actually want to take a moment. I want to pray, kind of an old-fashioned repeat-after-me prayer. If this isn't you, great. It's not for you. Fine. But there might be someone here who's thinking, yeah, I've not been committed to Jesus, and I want to be, and I don't know how. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray. I'm going to pray it out loud. You repeat after me in your mind if you're saying, yeah, this is what I want. And then we'll come back. But guys, go ahead, bow your heads. And then if this is what you want, if you want to recommit to Jesus, then just pray in your mind after me. God, I want to be committed. I've messed up, but I want this. Help me to be committed and not quit when it's hard. I'm choosing to obey you instead of doing what I want. I'm all yours. 
Amen. Be fully devoted to Jesus by being committed. All right, we're switching gears. Here's the next thing. Be fully devoted to Jesus by being conquerors. Who talks like that? Like conquerors? Like no, Nobody talks like that anymore. Uh, but they did back when Revelation was written. So if you're reading the Bible and you see uh, conquerors in there, you'll see this theme of victory. Man, the churches who got this letter would have understood what it felt like to be conquered by the Roman Empire. They would have understood what it felt like to celebrate a conquering hero. They would have known to associate conquering with victory, right? It's something that just was natural to them. Victory comes through conquest. Throughout the book of Revelation, we are told to be victorious or to be faithful and to hold on and to be conquerors, even in some translations. Okay. I mean, I've got questions about that. Like, who exactly are we supposed to be conquering here? Because if this is another crusade situation, I'm sitting this one out. Uh, man, who are we supposed to conquer? Well, the church at Ephesus that got that first letter we went through, they were told through a previous letter earlier in Ephesians chapter 6, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. So that's who we're supposed to conquer, uh, evil itself. There's real forces in this world that oppose God and everything he stands for, and we're called to fight against evil. And not just that, right, as if that's not hard enough, we're also supposed to, as Romans 8 tells us, to put to death the sin in our own life. Kind of a tall order, especially if we're supposed to be conquerors here. How are we supposed to fight evil and kill sin? Well, uh, not on our own. That's not going to happen. Do we have any basketball fans here? This is a stupid question. It's Indiana. I know. I saw Hoosiers. Um, okay, I'm going to make it personal, native Hoosiers. Do you remember the one time the Pacers made it to the NBA championship in year 2000? Yes, you do. And some of you don't like where I'm going with this. I understand. In 2000, the Pacers, who had a great team, best they've ever had, lost to the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA championship. Okay? Don't worry, we don't have to dwell on it. Don't hate me. I'm from Texas. It's not personal. Go Mavs. But continuing, uh, 2001, do you know what happened next? The Lakers won again. And then in 2002, the Lakers won again. They were three-peat national champions. And on that team, it's, it's a somewhat famous team to people who know a lot more about basketball than I do, because you had Kobe, and you had Shaq before they hated each other, and then you had Mark Mad Dog Madsen. Now, Mark Madsen... He, he was the last pick of the draft from after the 2000 championship. And in 2001, 2002 NBA championships, Mark Madsen averaged 0.4 points and 0.8 rebounds. Now, if that's not impressing you right now, I want to give you a little bit of context. Uh, Kobe averaged 28.5 points per game, and Shaq averaged 12.7 rebounds per game. So you've got 28.5, 12.7, 0.4, 0. 0.8, Okay. I landed between you and me, we could put together 0.4 points per game, okay? We could do it, buddy, uh, and it's all you because it's not me. So Mark Mad Dog Madsen was a part of the 2001 and 2002 NBA championship teams after contributing next to nothing, all right? He was much more known for his enthusiastic dancing on the floats after the victory. He was the crazy white guy who couldn't dance but was dancing a lot. Like, that's Mark, okay? But Mark is a two-time NBA champion, and none of us are. I don't think anyone would say that Mark won the Lakers their championships, right? That was Kobe. That was Shaq. He was kind of just there and then dancing afterwards. But here's the deal. 
He is an NBA champion. He showed up to practice. He even played in the games. He was ready to do whatever he could. He rode his teammates' coattails to victory, and then he celebrated like crazy. See where we're going with this? And the fight against evil and sin, that's our job, right? Mark didn't carry the team. We don't carry the team. Jesus carries the team. He carried the cross. He died on it. He rose from the grave. Jesus carries the team. But our job is to mad dog it, to be there, to be ready, to ride our teammates' coattails to victories, and then to celebrate like crazy. Mark got NBA championship rings out of the deal. We get something even better. And we get an eternity with a God who loves us and he cares about us and died for us. And our job in that, it's not to defeat the sin and evil in the world on our own. Jesus did that on the cross. But our job is to celebrate what he did and to be on his team. We want to be fully devoted to Jesus by being committed. We want to be fully devoted to Jesus by being a conqueror. Being a conqueror, that's what it means to experience victory through Christ. He's the one who is a conqueror, but we get to be on his team. Our job is to be faithful, to be fully devoted, to celebrate like crazy. So here's my question. What does it look like for you today to become fully devoted to Jesus? Is there an area of your life where you say, yeah, Jesus, I'm fully devoted to you, except when it comes to, and you get to fill in that blank for you. Maybe that's except when it comes to my eating habits, or my view of money, or my sex life, or how I treat my spouse my significant other, or my kids. Man, that's between you and God. But is there an area of your life where you're like, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to follow you except for this. To be fully devoted to Jesus is to get rid of that last part. Saying, Jesus, I'm going to be fully devoted to you. I'm going to follow you, period. Will you take the areas of my life where I'm not like you, would you change me and make me more like you there? But maybe you can't do that because you've never even said the first part. The Jesus, I'll follow you. That's fair. Man, And if that's you, I'm thrilled you're here. But your first step is to choose to follow Jesus. It's to believe the gospel. The gospel is the good news that we cannot get to God on our own, but we are not separated from him forever. That instead of us trying and failing to get to God, God came to us. He lived a perfect life, died a death he didn't deserve. And by taking our place and taking what we deserved, gives us an opportunity to have a permanent relationship with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And we have to receive it. We have to accept it. We have to admit that we need it, that we're separated from God because of our sin. Then we have to receive it and say, God, instead of trying to earn my way to you, I accept, I receive what you did for me, and I will follow you. And that's the good news. That's the first step. The next step, after someone has done that in their heart between them and God, is baptism. One of the phrases we use is baptism is an outward expression of an inward decision. The decision to follow Jesus, that's between you and God. That's personal. Baptism, that's between you and God, but it's not just you and God. Because that's somebody publicly telling others that they've chosen to follow him. It's a next step of obedience for someone to say, yeah, I've chosen to follow Jesus, and I will show that through baptism. When someone gets baptized, right, they're taken uh, symbolically under the water and then back out. And that's a picture of Jesus actually being put into the ground and then coming back from the dead. It's, it's storytelling in a physical way, talking about Jesus' victory as he's a conqueror over sin and death. Sin and death, period, but also sin and death in somebody's life. That when they choose to follow him, they're getting baptized. And that's an opportunity for them to be obedient, take that next step, and let other people know they've chosen to follow Jesus. That's also an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity, and if you're a follower of Jesus, I would say this is actually a responsibility for us to celebrate 
right here at Ridge, what we want to do is we want to go crazy every single time somebody gets baptized. We've got people who are going to get baptized there from different walks, different stages of life. But what they have in common is that they've said, on my own, I cannot get to God, but he came to me. And even though I deserve to die and to be separated from God, I'm not going to be because Jesus took my place on that cross and I can have a relationship with God because of him. And there are people in this room who have yet to make that decision. If that's you right now, I'm actually begging you to think about it and to think about what does it mean for you to be fully devoted to Jesus? What does it mean for you to choose to follow him in the first place? But for every single one of us who has already chosen to follow Jesus, we're going to have people get baptized here in just a minute. This is an opportunity and responsibility for us to celebrate what God has done in our life, what God has done in their lives, and what he did on the cross. That we can have hope in the middle of a really messed up world and really confusing and scary times, knowing that we don't deserve to get to be with God on our own, but because he came to us, we get a permanent relationship with him, that we get to experience victory through Christ. And it's a big deal. And it's worth celebrating like crazy every single time. So I'm going to pray in just a minute. And I'm actually, I'm going to go sit right down there. And if any of you want to come and join me, you are more than welcome to, because we're going to celebrate like crazy every single time somebody gets baptized and by their action says that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. You died a death that you did not deserve so that we could experience victory with you. Because on our own, we were toast. God, we could not get to you, and we deserve to be separated from you. But you loved us enough that you didn't leave us there. We are so grateful. Thank you for changing lives. Thank you for changing my life. Thank you for changing my friends' lives. God, so many of us in this room, you have changed our lives, and we are grateful, and we want to say thank you. We also want to celebrate, God, because these people getting baptized, they've chosen to follow you, and you've changed their lives already. Would you keep doing that? Would you help them to grow? Would you help us to follow you with everything that we have? We love you. We trust you. Amen.